The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus 31, 1 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by my name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft." And behold, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahizamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability, that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils, and the pure lampstand with all its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the basin and its stand, and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut from among his people. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and So the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. Again, we've met already, but uh, for those of you that may be unfamiliar with me, my name is Jeff Miller. Uh, I'm an elder candidate here at Sacred City, and uh, I'm doing a church planning residency right now uh, with Sacred City to um, potentially do a church plant uh, somewhere in the Quad Cities, or if God calls elsewhere, uh, the freedom to do that as well. Uh, But that's kind of my role right now. I'm a uh, missional community leader uh, over in Bettendorf. Uh, I'm a dad. I'm a CrossFitter, sort of. Um, and uh, I'm, uh, my wife and I have lived here in the Quad Cities now for uh, coming up on five years, uh, which is um, 
good for us. It's been good to put roots down and love this place and um, be a part of the Quad Cities. And it's kind of getting back to the roots of where both my wife and I grew up. And uh, we love being here. And and this morning, as uh, I get the opportunity to preach to you, uh, we find ourselves about 40 weeks deep now uh, into the book of Exodus. Uh, We are at chapter 31. uh, And when we got uh, to chapter 20, we took about 10 weeks there, walked through the Ten Commandments. uh, And now we're past that. And God's kind of laying out to his people uh, how they will worship him and what it will look like. And um, last week, uh, Sam covered a lot of ground. Pastor Sam covered uh, chapters 25 through 30, uh, where God really gives the instructions on how to build the tabernacle. This will be the place where God will move in and live among the people of Israel. Uh, and God is very specific with the instructions uh, that are given as to what his house will look like. And now this week, what we're going to move on to is the task of building all the things that God said to build. If, or to build, excuse me. If you were to go back and look uh, at chapter 25 through 30, there's quite a few things that God says, this is what you are to build. And he gives instructions and he tells about uh, how fine it will be and all those things. And, and this week's really interesting. And I, I'm actually really excited to preach this to you because uh, as I was preparing, I really had to preach to myself this week. And we're going to talk about uh, our work today. And we're going to see that our work uh, really does, in fact, matter to God. We're going to see that uh, God is the one who gives us the ability to work, and he's also the one who empowers our work. You see, those two things separated can really get us off track. If we just believe we're given ability to work and we go about it in our own strength, uh, that's not necessarily what God has called us to do, but God gives us work and he empowers us to do that work, And, and I believe that we'll see that this morning, and we'll see that our work actually leads to worship. Our work leads us to worship, and our work also has the ability to lead others to worship. So let's do this. Let's pray this morning, and we're going to really start digging in here and get rolling with it, okay? Let's pray. Father, we are uh, thankful for the opportunity to come in this morning and hear your word preached. We're thankful to come in uh, and take a bit of a rest. Even as our scripture was read, it talked about the Sabbath, and God, we take this as a day of rest, a day to Uh, renew our mind and renew our strength and look back on the past week and all the things you brought into our lives and all the things that maybe you took out of our lives that uh, drew us closer to you. And God, now as we kind of reorient ourselves in the beginning of a new week, we pray that you would speak fresh to us, that you would speak new to us, that your word would be an encouragement, but your word would also be uh, a prick to our minds and, and to our souls that we might want to know you more and live for you more this week. And uh, God, we just pray that, that the, the words said this morning would be words that, it, that you have deemed necessary, words that you have uh, put in my mind and, and, and are uh, bringing out of my mouth. And we just pray that, um, God, this morning, may we find you more beautiful, more satisfying uh, than we ever thought we could. So God, today, as we talk about our work Would you help us to see where that mandate comes from and what it's for? We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. So again, chapters 25 through 30 in the book of Exodus has given Moses the instructions on what will go in the tabernacle, what it will look like, where it will be placed, who will have access, what things will be used for. Uh, Interestingly enough, God covers everything uh, in chapters 25 through 30 from the curtains all the way down even to the undergarments that the priests will wear. Like, that's thorough, right? You will, you will have this type of curtains and you will wear these type of drawers. And it's just, that's just the extent of what God covers. And, and he, 
it's, it's good for us that, that God is detailed, God is specific, God lays this all out. Uh, but in the midst of that, we're also gonna see that God leaves some freedom and we'll get to that. But God is taking care of the things necessary and told Moses what's gonna happen. And now God moves on to who will make it. And that's actually pretty interesting if you think about this. So God said, here's what it will look like. Here's the pieces, here's the parts, here's all the details. And then says, now you're going to build it. And he begins to point out specific people and say, you're gonna do this task and you're gonna do this task and I've given you this to do this task. And why that's interesting is because if we were to jump back into Genesis chapter one and just look at verses one through three, I'm gonna read it for you. And what I want you to see here is the God who has who is said all these details and is giving it out to somebody else is a God with, with enough power to simply snap his fingers and have it done. But let me read a little bit to you from Genesis 1. I'm just gonna read verses one through three and then just kind of show us maybe what's going on here. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. So this God who's laid out in chapters 25 through 30, all the details, all the things that are going on has now said, I'm going to empower men to do it. But God could have done this work himself. God could have spoke it into existence and done it. Really, if you think about creation, why I took you back here is God, our God is the God who can tell nothing to do something and it does it. There was nothing before God and he spoke the world into existence. He spoke and light came. He spoke and the, the earth was created and he speaks it into existence. So the God who has the power to do that though looks down at his people and says, you know what? You are going to do this work. You are gonna be the ones who create this. Not because God needed them to do this but because God will show his power and his grace through them and in how they build it. We're gonna see this morning that our work matters to God. So much so that God calls specific people to specific tasks at specific times and places. And God doesn't stop there. He also empowers them to do the task. You see, God just doesn't call men's name out here and said, you go do it. He also provides them with all the resources necessary to actually do that task. He doesn't uh, call their name and then say, you figure it out. He places his spirit inside of them. He gives them the job and he gives them the power to do it. So let's begin uh, this morning in our text in Exodus chapter 31. And we're just gonna kind of go verse by verse. We're, we're gonna uh, go slow here at the beginning. We're gonna lump some together as we go on. But let's start in Exodus 31 and verse one. It says here, it says, the Lord said to Moses, see, I have called by, nine, by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. Now, I wanna emphasize a word here quickly as we begin in verse two. You see the word here that says, see, I have called by name. The word called here is actually the word voca. It's where we get the word vocation from. You see, God is saying, I have given Bezalel the profession of craftsmen. God is calling him to a vocation. God is giving him a job. And this isn't just a one-time job. This isn't a weekend hobby. It's not like craft time with God. This is, this is Bezalel's vocation. This is his job. This is the thing that he does. And just by reading this, this should perk us up a little bit because what's going on here has meaning for all of us. 
It means that the job you do, the task that you do, is a calling from God. God calls people to specific tasks, specific jobs, specific vocations. So the place you are right now in life, the job you have, the place that you are, may very well be the place that God has called you. Now I say that this morning because I think all too often we are people that are very forward thinking and we're kind of always looking to what's best next, right? We're looking at what are we going to do down the road from now? And I think if you look back, you'd probably see this from the time we were kids to even where you find yourself now to somewhere in your mid twenties, probably, right? Like we're, we're looking to what's going on. So like as kids, we're kind of always thinking, or maybe we do this as parents, we're kind of always kind of telling our kids what they're going to do or what they're going to be, and we're, we're telling them things about them, and we're, we're teaching our kids like, hey, one day you'll actually go potty in the potty, and that'll be great, so I can get away from this diaper changing task, right? And then we teach them, you're going to be able to tie your shoes one day, so you'll be a big boy or a big girl, and then we teach them how to actually match their clothing, and some do better than that at others, that, but... We teach them how to do that, and we're, we're kind of always pushing them towards kind of growing up, right? I have a 12-year-old young man that lives in my house, and we are kind of always kind of spurring him on to being a man and being an adult and kind of growing him into that and, and just kind of giving him a vision for what it looks like to be a man, what it looks like to be an adult, what it looks like to be a functional member of society, and we're, we're pushing them towards that. And, and I think even as kids, we kind of look toward milestones with our ages, right? Turning five is a big deal, right? Turning 10 is a big deal. 13 becomes huge, right? 14 if you're in Iowa, because then you get that like, piece of paper that says you can drive a car around, which is really incredibly scary. And then 16, which most everybody should actually get that piece of paper that says you can drive around. And then 18 becomes big, right? And then 21 becomes big. And then 25 becomes big. And then nobody looks forward to anything after that. But we're like, we know it happens and it comes, right? Like there's these milestones that we go through. And even in high school, if, if you can remember back that far, we were always kind of looking forward to what was next. When you're a freshman, you're looking forward to being a sophomore. Sophomores, juniors, juniors, seniors. As a senior, you're looking forward to being a freshman again for some reason, right? Like, it's like, why would I ever go back to that miserable place? But you do, and, and we're always looking towards what's next. And you could ask the seniors in high school that are, that are here this morning, they get the question all the time, what are you gonna do? Where are you gonna go? What are you gonna be when you grow up? And most of them are just like, I just want to be a human being. Like, let me, I'm fine and content with that. And then we get on to college or we get into a career field and, and we're looking forward to what's next, right? Like, what job am I going to pursue? What am I going to give my life to? What am I going to be? And then when we get that job, it's maybe, what's the next job? What's the next thing? How can I move up here? I don't always want to be at this level. Then we become business owners and we're kind of looking for the next thing to propel that business, Right, where what can make me have more of a name here? What can make me more known here? What can advance this business? And it might become uh, billboards, it might become commercials, it might be bigger trucks, it might be better magnets on the side of said trucks, it might be buying a space downtown where, where your business gets uh, a better look than what it had before. And 
you know, it just continues on, right? Couples, we, you get married and you're always kind of starting wondering about family planning and people start bugging you from the day one of marriage, right? Like, when are you gonna have babies? You're like, we just got married. We're gonna practice for a while, right? Like, let us, let us enjoy this time. But people kind of push you toward that. It's always what's next. And the list goes on and on and on. And I, I think even, even for maybe some of the older folks in the room, you've been working for uh, a lot of years now and people are saying, what's next? What are you going to do when you retire? What are you going to do then? And it, it's always kind of what next? what's next. And listen, none of these things in and of themselves are bad things, but if they become the only thing, we kind of miss why we are where we are we may very well miss where we've been called to right now. We may very well miss what God has for us now in this place. In our text this morning, we're introduced to a guy named Bezalel or Bezalel, or I don't really care how you pronounce his name, but we're introduced to Bezalel, okay? Uh, And at the time we meet him, Bezalel is already a craftsman. So as he's been called here, he's not being called to something he isn't already doing. He isn't someone who, who hasn't been a craftsman before, right? He's not been uh, like an electrician and all of a sudden God says, now you're gonna build things with wood. And he's like, what? I've never done this. Like this is already something he's been working on before. And we can kind of trace back apparently all the way back to Egypt. Bezalel was already doing this type of work and he's become skilled at it. Somewhere along the way, he decided to put time in. Now listen to that. In Egypt, Bezalel was a slave. And in the midst of slavery, though, he's doing good work. He's putting in time. He's putting in effort. He's honing his craft. He's perfecting what he did on a daily basis. Listen, as a slave, it appears here that he wasn't looking at his job as just something to do to get him by from eight to five every single day. It appears as so that as he was doing his job, he was doing it well, and he was doing it with excellence. He was learning, he was practicing, and he was paying attention to how things work and how things play out in his craftsmanship. And he was skilled at his job, and he was faithful to it. You see, Bezalel's doing his job because he's been called to it. You see, he's not looking at his job as just some way to collect a paycheck or some way maybe just to provide for his family. He's looking at his job as a vocation, as a calling. And that really should change things here. Experts say that it takes more than 10,000 hours to become a master or a professional at, at, at a task. And as we see Bezalel here, it seems like he's put in the work. And just a little side note, this is free information, but those of you that are, that are moms in the room, since it's mother, Mother's Day, 10,000 hours, that's 416 24-hour days, okay? So after that baby is just a little over a year, you've arrived, okay? You are now a professional. And actually, you can kind of see that play out a little bit, right? Those of you that, that maybe have more than one child now, that, that first one, you take all that time and all that effort, and you're honing, and you're perfecting, and you're finding out what works and what doesn't work, and you're putting in all that work, and all those sleepless nights, and all those sleepless days, and all that lost sleep, and you guys never sleep. And it's just, you're putting in all that work. But then, somewhere along the way, baby number two comes along, and, and now what do you do? You're a little better prepared, right? You don't, well, I don't want to say you don't care so much because your other child's like, what? Like, but you, you know how to do this job, right? This calling is now a bit easier because you've been doing the work. You've been putting in the work, okay? That was free. Now back to this, okay? 
The truth, though, as we look at this text and we see a guy like Bezalel, the truth is that all of us have been called to work. All of us have been called to a vocation. All of us have been called to something. All the way back to the book of Genesis again, in Genesis 1.28, we find what's known as the cultural mandate. Okay? In Genesis 1.28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. The cultural mandate here, fill the earth. So, make babies, and then subdue the earth. Now, the make babies part we're pretty well familiar with. Uh, we we kind of get a, a picture of what that takes. Yeah, sorry, got embarrassed. Okay, We know what happens there. We know how that takes place. But the subdue it part, what does that mean to subdue something, to subdue the earth? And, and the best kind of simplest answer I could come up with for us this morning is you kind of get a, a sense of this every time you mow your lawn or maybe every time you see someone else mow their lawn right? As you look at your yard and it's overgrown grass and there's weeds kind of popping up and there's all kinds of little flowers that you kind of grab and blow and make wishes that the grass would mow itself. You see all those things kind of growing up and then you bust out the mower or the tractor if you're fortunate and you start that thing up and you just begin to go. And as you look back, you begin to see these straight lines of amazingness right? Your lawn is now mowed. It's, it's, it's in order. You've seen chaos before and now it's ordered and it's a beautiful thing. You're subduing your lawn. You're taking something that was chaotic and a mess and you're bringing order to it. Over grass, overgrown grass and weeds now become ordered lines of freshness. You've also probably maybe seen a house being built somewhere. It started as just like a patch of grass and land, and then several months go by, and now you have this house that just kind of appeared uh, over the days. And, and it, so what somebody did there is they subdued what was there. They took a patch of grass, and, and they subdued it, and they built upon it, and now there's a house sitting on it. This is what subduing means. And, and just as a little, another little side note, I'm getting good at that, uh, I want you to also note that the cultural mandate came before the fall. You see, work was given to Adam well before the fall ever came. You see, work is a good endeavor. Work is not a a part of the fall. It's not as if Adam and Eve were just kind of like wandering around eating fruit all day, like like just gathering berries, like and and just like sunbathing. They they had a job to do. They were to subdue, they were to work. It was a good endeavor for them. And actually, even as we see God, when he's finished the work of creation, he works himself, and then he pronounces, this is very good. You see, God didn't look at his work and say, that was tiring and ridiculous, and I don't want to do that anymore. He looks at the work, and he says, it's, it's good. So we see that it's good for man to work, and woman for that matter. It's good for us to work. Work has always been part of God's plan for us. But since I mentioned the fall, mentioned the curse, it does impact our work. Genesis 3.18, God's telling Adam and Eve the curse that's now been placed on them for eating the fruit of which he told them not to eat of. And God says, he says, when Adam plants food in the earth, he says this, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now it's going to take work to subdue the earth. Now the earth will produce thorns and thistles. Now the work will take effort. And now it may even be painstakingly slow. And now we begin to see work as work. 
right? Before, it seems like there was a joy in it. It seems like there was an ease to it, but now it's become an ugly four-letter word, work. It's the thing that you will go to sleep tonight not wanting to do tomorrow, right? You'll go to sleep tonight thinking, maybe if I could just not go to sleep tonight, that won't come. But you know it's gonna come. It's work. But in the midst of that, we've been called to it. Yes, it can be frustrating. Yes, it can produce thorns and thistles. Yes, it's often a source of groaning. Many of us can think about days of work where it would have been better just for us to call in sick than to have actually gone into the office, right? You've had one of those days like, why didn't I just turn around? Why did I not go back to sleep? It's produced uh, headaches for you that you didn't see coming. When we get to work, there can oftentimes be disagreements between people there. There can be frustration. There can be things that we didn't see coming. Maybe a deal fell through. Uh, maybe the details didn't work out the way you thought it would. Uh, maybe your commission check's gonna end up going to somebody else. People uh, maybe are giving you extra things to do. I remember one of the most frustrating things when I finally started uh, working was when I would actually complete my job and then my boss would give me somebody else's job to do. Like, how's that fair? <laughs> I did my job. Why do I get more work for being good at what I did? And that's just how work works, right? Thorns and thistles. You know, another frustrating about work may be, though, that we miss the beauty in it. See, often instead of seeing the beauty in our work, we pursue the task to get something from it. Instead of seeing the beauty in our work, we pursue the task of work to get something from it. You see, for some of us, work has become the way in which we measure or we compare ourselves to other people. Work has become the way uh, that we uh, see if we're doing well enough. We try to prove that we're special. It's a way for us to feel secure, maybe a way for us to feel powerful. And when we see our work as something other than a calling or our work, our job, a vocation, it becomes something to build an identity upon. And that's when work becomes really shaky because now we find ourselves in a dilemma. You see, what happens if I've built my identity up in my work and I lose my ability to do that job? Or if I just plain lose that job? Well, if this job is my identity, well, now I don't even know who I am anymore. You may have seen this happen to somebody or maybe this may have happened to you and you got in a situation where you couldn't perform your job anymore or maybe you lost your job and now you're just the guy or the girl who used to be and you fill in the blank. The guy or the girl that used to be the employee at that place, who used to be the person who did these things. This is why so many people retire and end up going back to work. Both of my parents uh, had the opportunity to be uh, here with us uh, a few weeks ago, and both of them are retired now. Uh, and I talked to my dad just last week, and he said, he said yeah, uh, I'm, going, I'm going back. <laughs> just a couple days a week, though. Like, <laughs> why? I said, Dad, what do you need? He said, I, I just need to get out of the house. I just need to find this other thing to do. I need to find something. And, and, and I don't necessarily believe that he's built his identity up in it, but there's something about him in the back of his head that he is a worker and he is a doer. And sitting at home makes him feel lazy, makes him feel not worthy, makes him feel like he's not good enough. So he goes back. But I, I think the danger even is much deeper than that. You see, finding our identity in our work actually robs us of a bit of our humanity. When we find our identity in our work, it really boils us down into like little widgets that just perform tasks. When we find our identity in our work, it makes us nothing more than a little, like, I like that word, just a widget to complete a task. And I believe we were created 
for so much more than that. And I hope that that's a question that that you would ask this morning. Man, is this all I'm created for in my work to be a widget, to complete a task? Let's look further into the text this morning and see what's going on here and how we can see more about our work and and what God calls us to. In verse 2, we find that God calls Bezalel, but it doesn't end there. Let's look at verse 3. It says, And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship. We can go on a little bit even more. To devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. We find that God fills him with the Spirit. So not only does God give Bezalel the the task He doesn't just call him. Now he empowers him. He gives him the tools to actually do the job. He doesn't leave him to figure it out on his own. He says, this this is what you're gonna do and I'm gonna give you the power to do it. And you know, this right here may be why several of you are frustrated with your job. It may very well be that you're doing a job that you have not been called to. And it may very well be that the reason you feel unsuccessful at it, the reason you don't find joy in it, the reason why you don't want to go in on Monday morning is it may very well be you're doing a job you have not been called to. It may very well be that you've allowed maybe yourself to become that widget who just performs a task when God has a calling for you, when God has something bigger for your life. It may very well be that you haven't been called to it but you continue to do it every day because you don't know what else to do. And if you don't do that, then who are you? You see, scripture though tells us that Bezalel is called and equipped. It means he was gifted for the job. We already talked about the fact that Bezalel was already a craftsman and now we see here that that God's spirit is placed upon him and it empowers him. And it doesn't empower him with the ability to do a job that everybody looks at Bezalel and says, he's the man. Look at how great he is. The Spirit empowers Bezalel with ability, intelligence, knowledge, and all craftsmanship. It's not given to him so that people will look at him and say, whoa. It's actually given to him for the exact opposite of that. So people will look at the work he's done and say, whoa. Look at the God who empowered him to do that. They may have seen Bezalel's work uh, back in Egypt. They may have seen it around the camp but now they're gonna see it in a way that directs their all back to God. You see, Bezalel didn't just wake up one morning and now he's a craftsman. This was his profession and now God's going to use him and empower him for the greater task that will lead people to worship. Think about that. His job is going to lead people to worship. It's not a small task. What God, what Excuse me, what will God's spirit empower Bezalel to do? Verse four told us all those things. Artistic designs, working gold, silver, bronze, cutting stones, setting and carving wood to work in every craft. God's spirit comes upon him in order for him to accomplish the God-given task for which he was created. And because Bezalel was doing the work all those years uh, in slavery and, and maybe even just a little bit of the time since they've been removed from slavery, now his his vocation is now going to serve God. God's going to call on him and say, you're going to lead people to me through your work, through your job, through your vocation. All the years of being a craftsman, all the long hours, all the practice, all the splinters, all the blisters on his hands, all the days and weeks and months perfecting his craft, 
all leading to this moment in which God will put his spirit on him. Now listen, what did it, requ- what did it require of Bezalel? As we look through even the first five verses, it doesn't look like it requires anything of Bezalel. God doesn't say, hey, Bezalel, I want you to get your act together and then I'm gonna give you this spirit. I want you to uh, start dressing a certain way, looking a certain way, buy a certain type of home, build a certain type of tent, and then I'm gonna give you my spirit. No, 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 it seems like it's nothing more than his faithfulness to his work. It's nothing more than Bezalel continuing to show up to his calling. Bezalel looks at his station in life and he works hard where he's placed. Now, as I'm saying that about Bezalel, we should be asking the same thing of ourselves. Are we showing up faithfully? Are we putting in the work? Are we faithful to our job? Are faithful to our work? Faithful to our station in life where we've been placed? Bezalel was all of those things, and now he finds himself in the position of creating something that only God himself could have come up with, all because he was faithful with where God placed him, And he worked at it. He worked at it. And it doesn't stop with Bezalel. Let's go on to the rest of the text in verse 6. And behold, I have pointed with him Aholiab, the son of that guy, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So now we find that Bezalel's getting a team of guys. He's got a group of men around him who have also been faithful to their task. They've been working well, and now they're going to get to be about the task of creating the tabernacle. Now, this is pretty fascinating. Let me ask you something. Whose work was the whole tabernacle? Like, who came up with it? Who gave the plans for the tabernacle? God did. God came up with all of this. This is God's work, and now he gives it to these men to complete. Think about that. God lays out all the instructions, and then he says, now you will do this. He's empowering their work. Let me ask you this morning, how would it change your job, your calling, your vocation, if you viewed it as God's work? If you viewed it as the thing God had called you to, does it make your work more weighty? Does it maybe even make your work a little bit more fun? Because now you're doing the task for God. You're not doing the task for your boss. You're not doing your task for your family. You're doing the task for God. Now it may make it the thing you wake up for in the morning besides God himself, of course. It should do all of those things. When we realize that our job, our calling, our vocation is God's work, That now makes it more weighty, but it also brings joy. It creates us to wake up with a kind of vigor to take on the day, even Mondays, because yes, one of those is coming. If it should do all of those things, why isn't it? Why aren't we viewing our work that way? If our work is a calling from God, then why doesn't it satisfy us? Why doesn't it bring kind of a completeness to us? Why are we so frustrated with us? And I would say this morning it's because we have made work the thing that we've given ourselves to and we've misplaced our worship in the midst of our work. 
We've given ourselves to our work as the thing, and we've misplaced our worship. You see, we've begun to worship our work instead of the one who's given us the work. We've begun to take our work and, and to look at our work to give us things that it was never intended to give us. We look at our job to give us security, accolade, power, attaboys, purpose, stuff, meaning. And this is all a lie. See, God calls us in order that we might worship him, not worship what we do. He gives us the task. He gives us the calling that we might worship him and not worship what we do. And this is true all the way through the gospel. God calls Abraham to worship him and make him a people, not to make much of Abraham, but to make much of God. God calls Joseph that his people might be protected from the famine, not so that much might be made of Joseph. God calls Moses to free his people, not to make much of Moses, but so that the people uh, that Moses frees are now free to worship God. God calls the prophets so that his people will worship him and not to make much of the prophets. And we could go on and on with the list of people listed out in scripture. God did not give them the calling and give them the task to make much of themselves. He gave them the calling and the vocation to make much of God. To make much of the one who gave them the task. You see, God is in the business of calling men and women to himself for, the, for his purpose. And he will empower the people, but it will be for his glory. There's something interesting that takes place in these first 11 verses that we look at here. Six times in the first 11 verses, God tells us exactly who it is that is giving the job, who's responsible for the work. Let's just look at a few. Look back at verse two. Verse two says, see, I have called. Look at verse three. And I have filled. Jump down to verse six. And behold, I have appointed. Keep going in verse six. And I have given to all able men ability. Keep going, that they may make all that I have commanded you. Jump to verse 11. And the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. God's responsible for the work. God commands the work. God empowers the work. And we can't confuse this. Our work is not the thing. God who calls us to the work is the thing. Our work is not the thing. Carpenters, electricians, photographers, accountants, IT guys, teachers, students, cashiers, secretaries, weathermen. Did I miss anything in there? Trying to th- I'm looking around the room. Did I miss did I miss it? Moms. God has called you to the work, but the work is not the thing. The one who has called you to it is the thing. The work is the thing that you do to bring glory to the one who gave you the work. God calls, God fills, God appoints, God gives, God commands. The work doesn't do that. The work points you to the one who has made you to do the work. All of those professions or jobs that I just listed a second ago, those of you that do those jobs, do those vocations, you've been gifted to do that job. God has designed your mind to work in a way and made your hands to function in such a way that enables you to do that job. And in every single one of those jobs, there's beauty to be found in it. Wiring that properly lines up. All the electricians in the room said, yes. 
images that bring things to life for the photographers and artists in the room. Websites that actually work. Thank you, IT people. Teachers, lessons that open up gateways and portals for children to learn. Students, homework that's thoughtful and complete. And all the parents and teachers said, amen. A cashier's drawer that's accurate and orderly. How about the accountants in the room? How in the world is there beauty in your job? Numbers that work together to show accurate results. And I think it actually even goes further than that. Numbers are, if you think about it, numbers don't exist. Like they're symbols, they're art, and you're working with art on a daily basis and working formulas and rhythms and patterns that make things work together that that show a a more accurate picture of what's taking place. And all of us are, are thankful for you and we're thankful for all the people that do these jobs. I mean, you could list every job and go down the way and think about how these people have been empowered to do this job and how it brings glory and honor. The trash man that's gonna show up at your house this week That's a glorious job. Think about if that man did not exist, what you would have to do. You'd be responsible for that. You'd have to do that. But no, God's gifted someone to do that. The janitor at the place that you work has been gifted and talented in that job to bring beauty. And you know this is true. You've walked into a gas station restroom before and it's been clean. And what came out of your mouth? Thank God. Where did that come from? God enabled and empowered somebody and gave them the ability to make a clean restroom. And what did it do? It caused you to worship. Thank God that person did their job and this is clean. We could keep going and keep going on the list, but God is for beauty in our work. If you would go back and look at the plans for the design of the tabernacle, versus, or excuse me, uh, chapters 25 through 30 that Pastor Sam preached through last week, It is beautiful, it's detailed, it's ornate, it's colorful, it's work intensive. Listen to what it's not. It's not dull, it's not plain, it's not lifeless, it's not vanilla, right? It's not square, it's not boring at all and neither should our work be. Quality and beauty matter to God. When giving the instructions on what to build, God leaves room here for the creativity of the craftsman. And in your work, he does the same thing. There's room for creativity and there's room for beauty. Like how many of us have looked at someone do their job before and thought, that was beautiful. You just see an athlete maybe do their job and you're like, wow, that's beautiful. You look at an artist paint something and that's beautiful. You watch the Channel 4 News and watch Ash do what Ash does and you think, it's beautiful. Yeah, you didn't see it that way, but all the rest of us, we see it that way, right? Like, but when you see someone do a job well and, and perform the task to the best of their ability, you just, it just causes you to stop for a moment. This is beautiful. This works. There's something moving about a job well done. God is for good art and he's for beautiful things. This is why even here at Sacred City, we strive to have great music and great worship gatherings, even outside of this building 
as well. This is why we, our, our musicians get together and they go play at local places all around our city. This is why we produce uh, CDs. We produce good music. This is why our pastor has written books. It's good material. It's good art. It's a beautiful thing. God is empowering his people to bring, to bring beauty from thorns and thistles. God is empowering us in the midst of thorns and thistles of life to bring beauty. God's about excellence in our job that point people to him. In fact, that's what this text of scripture actually points to. As we look at Exodus 31, there's this whole section on the Sabbath here that, that we get pointed to in verses 12 through 17. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is the sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And there's, some, there's more pieces there, but listen, these guys, Bezalel, Aholiab, and the, and the other men, they're doing this job to bring the people of Israel into better worship of God. All the things they were create, are creating are going to help the people worship God better and more fully, and, and maybe you could even say more accurately. Their job is, it points to the Sabbath. It points to the proper use of the tabernacle. Their work will lead the people of Israel, as well as themselves, to worship because that is always what the work was about. It was about worship. It was never about Bezalel. It was never about Aholiab. It was never about the other guys. It was about worship. And when the work is done right and done with excellence, it leads the people to worship God and find rest in him. Look down to the end of verse uh, 17. It's talking about God here. It says, it is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he rested and listen to this, and was refreshed. Because their work was done with excellence on this seventh day, they find rest and they are refreshed. And for you and I, as we go into our jobs, our callings, our vocations, and we come in on a Sunday morning and we look back on a work a work week well worked, a work week well done, we can find rest in God, the one who gave us the ability to do the job, and we can be refreshed. Now we can look at Monday as just, a, I don't want to say a task to be accomplished, but we can, we can look at Monday and say, I'm empowered to do this, I'm refreshed, I'm rested, and I'm ready. And you can go back in with the, with the strength and power of God empowering you to do that. Think about it. Isn't this what we want our work to do? We, don't we want our work for, for people to, to look at what we've done and worship God because of it? You see, all too often we kind of confuse that. Maybe we start a business or we choose a career field because we believe it will cause people to look at us. And that's, again, it's misplaced. Paul says our problem in Romans 1, 21 through 23, he says this. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Listen to the very first part of that. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Listen, believers in the room, we are people that know God and when it comes to our work, we need a reminder about whose work this really is. 
and who our ability and who our work ultimately points to. We are people who can look out our window and see the glory of God all around us and yet somehow we willfully choose to worship other things. We think we're wise in our worshiping our work because it gives us purpose, satisfaction, power, and all these other things that we may be looking for. But in the end, we end up worshiping a foolish idol. Think about it. You've seen somebody lose their job or lose their ability to do a job and seen them be devastated. And maybe you've looked in and say, why? Why are they taking this so hard? Now, obviously they lost their job, so there, sh- there should be a-, a hardness about it, but why are they crumbling? Why, why are things seem to be coming unraveled? It's because in the midst of their job, they were worshiping an idol. And that may very well be some of us this morning. We've made an idol out of our work. Again, we've made it the thing. So as we come to this point this morning, what do we do with all of this? Do we just go into work tomorrow morning and we work so much harder because we want to see everybody worship God? We do our job so much better so that people will, will walk into the room and say, thank God for this. Well, the answer is yes and no there. Yes, we want to do a job well done so that people will worship God, but we don't want to do this. We don't want to just tell you to like work harder, right? Like you have the ability to do a better job than what you've been doing. We've all heard that talk before. How, how long does that talk work for? It might get you by a day or a week or maybe even a month, but you're going to find yourself needing that talk again. Jesus actually gives us a better solution than working harder. Jesus gives us a better solution than trying harder. If you turn with me this morning over to Mark chapter one, I wanna look at what Jesus has to say about how we turn from this. How do we find ourselves in worship rather than working harder? Mark chapter one this morning, I just wanna look at, at verse 14. Mark chapter one and verse 14. It says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel. That's the good news of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus comes on the scene and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus is telling the people that their savior has arrived and the thing they need to do to receive him is repent and believe. Jesus doesn't point the people back to their work. He doesn't say, if you work harder, you'll receive salvation through that. No, he actually points to himself and the work that he will do on the cross for them to free them from their slavery to sin, to free them from their bondage of finding their identity in their work. What does it mean to repent and believe? Well, repent means to turn away. You see, repentance is more than just, I'm sorry. It's an abandonment of the sin. It's a 180 from what, it's, what we've been doing. This is where it gets tricky for us, though, because oftentimes when I turn from my sin, I turn to something else, like my job. And I turn back to my effort, and I turn back to my performance, and I, maybe I add a rule I say, if I just do this in the morning, I'll worship better. 
If I just add this to my daily liturgy, I, I can do a better job. Or maybe I fall off the other side of the wagon and I say, well, God's forgiven me of that. It'll be okay. It's all right. I give myself a license. See, neither one of those things, though, is the gospel. Jesus didn't say repent and turn to your work. Jesus says believe. Repent and believe. Believe in him. Repent of worshiping your work and turn to Jesus, the one who has perfectly worked for you. Listen, in the ugliest work of art and simultaneously the most beautiful thing that's ever taken place, Jesus is beaten and crucified so that those who believe on him would worship God forever. Jesus worked perfectly for you and I on the cross so that we don't have to find an identity in our work. So now we can find our identity in the one who's worked perfectly for us. The one who has completed every task to the best of his ability, to perfection even. His work frees us from finding an identity in our work and gives us cause for rest and worship. Empowers us with the spirit to now go out and do our job with God in us versus me continuing to do my job out of my strength and my ability. He's given us the spirit to empower our work so that when others see it, it leads them to worship. And while we're doing it, it leads us to worship. Think about the last time you were doing your job and it caused you to pause and just thank God for giving you the ability to do that job. For using your body as an instrument to bring others to worship. For the God of the universe to look down and place his spirit inside of you to perform your calling. See, God didn't just create the world, spin it into existence, and then distance himself from it. God dwells among us. God lives with us. God speaks to his people. God wants a relationship with his people. And it's only through Jesus that that relationship is solidified, that that relationship is sealed. The gap between God and us is bridged. And now we're empowered to go out and do our job. No more worshiping our work. No more turning to it to be the thing that satisfies us. May we turn to the one who gives us the calling and empowers us to do the work. As we come to this table this morning, we're reminded of the work that Jesus did for us on the cross. We're reminded that Jesus gave himself totally to the work of our salvation. As we take the bread this morning, we're reminded of the complete sacrifice of Christ's work for us. As we take the wine this morning, we're reminded of the blood that was shed to complete, again, the work of our salvation. As we come this morning, may we find rest, may we find refreshment in the work of Christ on our behalf. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for giving us vocations. Thank you for calling us. But God, more so than that, we thank you for giving your spirit to us to empower us to do the job, to bring us to worship, 
and to bring others to worship through it. God, thank you for gifting us with the abilities and the talents to do our job, to make much of you in it. God, there may be many of us that came in this morning and we didn't see our job as all that important. But God, as we see, we see, the, the, as we see the text today, we see that you call people at specific times and specific places for specific tasks and you empower it. God, may no one in the room this morning leave and know that their work does not matter. You've called us to it, therefore it matters. May we work with excellence. May we work with diligence because you've given us the task. You've empowered us to do it. God, maybe for those of us that have just been kind of stuck and working our fingers to the bone or maybe we're just bored with our job, may you renew us and refresh us today with your spirit and help us to remind, remind us, God, of why we are where we are. You've called us to that place to be your hands, to be your feet, to be a mouthpiece, and may we be that. God, for the, for the uh, maybe, maybe there's one in the room today who does not yet trust you as their Lord and Savior. God, today, may they hear your call on their life. May they hear that you are in the business of calling men and women to yourself, that you've done the work for them to have salvation. You've done the work to free them from the bondage of finding an identity in their work and, ta- and in tasks they do, and now you've given them the freedom to find their identity in being a child of God worshiping the one who's performed perfectly, who's worked fully on their behalf. God, today, wherever we find ourselves, may we, may we rest, may we be refreshed by you. We pray these things this morning in your son's name. Amen.